This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall explore some of the aspects of modern society that are exacerbating the epidemic of depression, as well as look at some of people's long-standing searches for meaning. Clips today come from The Ezra Klein Show, Ideas from the CBC, This is Hell, and a portion of a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray. So I've read the book, and I realized something about it. This isn't actually a book about depression, is it? (laughs) What do you mean? It's not what it's about. Tell me more. This is a book about how society is screwed up. Yeah. Is it not? I think the fact that our society is screwed up is what's made us depressed and anxious to a really significant degree. So I think they're interconnected. But I think that's a fair point, actually. It's a, it's a diagnosis of what's going on with our culture that's made so many of us feel so bad. I mean, it felt to me reading this that you had snuck in a, a genuinely thoroughgoing critique of modernity under the guise <laughs> of a book about depression and anxiety, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. I think it's, I think it's really interesting. But there, what was fascinating to me reading the book was that you are very, very concerned that we have gotten this. And when I say this, you can't see it on a podcast, but I'm waving my <laughs> arms to, to, to signal all of it. You, you seem to me to feel that we have gotten this pretty profoundly wrong. You know, I'm glad to be alive today, and there's lots of things about our culture that we do right. But one of the things I learned from speaking to scientists all over the world, over 40,000 miles, is that we've quite deeply misunderstood things like depression and anxiety. And one of the things that kind of connected the critique of a lot of the scientists that I met, the critique from the World Health Organization, is I think it can be summarized in everyone listening to this knows that they have natural physical needs, right? You need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took them away from you, you would be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that we have natural psychological needs, right? You've got to feel you belong. You've got to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that people see you and value you. You've got to feel that you have a future you understand. And our culture is good at lots of things, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting people's deep underlying psychological needs. There's lots of evidence for that. And I think that's one, it's not the only one by any means, but that's one of the key reasons why we have this spiraling depression, anxiety, and addiction crisis. Well, help me with the evidence that it's getting worse, because this is something I was thinking about in the book. Um, what is the evidence that we are becoming more unhappy, more depressed, more alienated? Well, walk me through the evidence that this is not just bad, but life has always been bad, but that there is some modern pathologies that are accelerating. So one of the things I learned in all the research is that there are these the scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. There may well be other causes for which we don't yet have evidence. Two of those causes are biological. There are things that in your biology that can make you much more sensitive to depression and anxiety. And seven are factors in the way we live. And I don't think all of those factors have increased, but I do think some of them have increased. There's strong evidence some of them have increased. So I'll give you one example of one of the most powerful determinants, I think, which is loneliness. Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, who I've interviewed a lot, has proven that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. They're not just, they don't just make cause unhappiness. They are drivers of depression and anxiety for a very kind of simple reason. As he put it to me, if you think about the circumstances where human beings evolved, right, we exist, we're able to sit in this studio for one key reason, 
our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were incredibly good at one thing. They were incredibly good at banding together in cooperative tribes. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They were much better at working together. Every instinct human beings have is to be in a cooperative democratic, well, not sorry, democratic, to be in a cooperative tribe. And, you know, so just like bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. And there's really strong evidence that we are the first humans to really try to disband our tribes. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, it's not, not the average, but the most common answer is none. So we've got this unprecedentedly lonely society. And as Professor Cassiopo put it to me, you think about the circumstances where we evolved. If you were alone and separated from the tribe, you were anxious and depressed for a really good reason. You were about to be eaten, right? You were in terrible danger. If you got injured, you would probably die. So I think that's one factor, for example, I can talk about others. I want to, I want to stop you on yeah. that for a second, because you have a piece of evidence in the book that I'm very bought in on the loneliness research. Uh, I, I do think this is one of our, our truly severe social problems, but, but you had something I had never seen before, which is that you can measure the lonesomeness of people all over the world by testing how often they wake up in their sleep. And that was really that. That's one of those ones that has rung in my head since I read it. Can you can you talk a bit about that research? Yeah, and I, I was totally fascinated by this myself. So, everyone experiences something called micro awakenings in their sleep sometimes, which are you wouldn't register them, but you wake up very slightly and then you go back to sleep. Uh, so you, you're roused a little. And one of the things we know is that when people feel lonely, they experience much higher levels of micro awakenings. We think that's because. If you went to sleep on the savannas of Africa or our ancestors and you were lonely, you would be right to be vigilant and keep waking up because you, you weren't protected by the tribe, right? That's Professor Cassiopo's best thesis, although, you know, obviously it's hard to test that. Um, but it's a very good proxy for loneliness. If people describe themselves as being lonely, they will certainly experience a lot more micro awakenings. And one of the pieces of research Professor Cassiopo did is he went and spent time with this group called the Hutterites, who were even more hardcore than the Amish. They live in a very no electricity off the grid. And I went and spent time with an Amish community as well. And what he found is the Hutterites experience virtually no micro awakenings in their sleep. So they're, 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 it's not that lo what this demonstrated is it's not just that loneliness is a kind of inevitable human malady, it's that it's a function of certain ways of living. There was another thing that Professor Cassiopo discovered about loneliness that I, I've thought about so much. I actually realized I'd misunderstood what loneliness is. I had thought social isolation and loneliness were the same thing, right? So if you say to someone, do you feel lonely? Virtually nobody has difficulty understanding what you mean and answering yes or no. But what he found that was really surprising is that social isolation and feeling lonely actually don't correlate that much. Actually, the number of people you interact with is not a good predictor of how lonely you feel. There's something else that's a predictor of how lonely you feel. So he gave this example to me. If you imagine if you go, you know, we're in DC, if I, I've been to DC many times, but if I had come to DC for the first time and I went to the White House and I was standing in front of a crowd of people outside the front of the White House, I would be surrounded by people, but I would feel lonely, right? Or if you're in a hospital bed, you can push a button to get a nurse, they'll come straight away, but you're generally, you'd feel lonely in that situation. And he said, well, why is that? And what he discovered is the situations that cure loneliness are not when you get access to other people. They're situations of mutual aid. So it does not cure your loneliness 
to just be given someone helping you or to be surrounded by other people. So the nurse comes, you still feel quite lonely. What heals human loneliness is if you feel that you have a reciprocal relationship where someone is giving something to you and somewhere down the line, they'll give something back to you. Helps to explain why in marriages, people become really lonely when they start to break down and you no longer feel you're in it with the other person. Do you see what I mean? So that to me is such an interesting insight about loneliness. So, so give me then the, the, the broad piece of this within society. How did our society become an engine for loneliness? I think it's a whole range of things. There was this research I learned about from a wonderful person called Dr. Brett Ford, who's at the time was at Berkeley. She's in Toronto now. And she really helped me to think about this. So she did this really interesting research with her colleagues. They looked at if you consciously decide you're going to spend more of your life trying to become happier, will you actually become happier, right? And they did this research in four countries. It was the United States, Japan, China, and Russia. And what they found is, if in, in the United States, if you consciously try to become happier, you do not become happier. But in the other countries, you do. And they were like, what's going on here? So they did more research. What they discovered was, in the United States, if we try to make ourselves happier, generally, you do something for yourself. You try to make more money, you buy something for yourself, you spoil yourself, you show off on Instagram, whatever. In the other countries, most of the time, if you tried to make yourself happier, you did something for someone else. You tried to help your friends, your community. So we have an implicitly individualistic vision of happiness and they have an implicitly collectivist vision of happiness. And it turns out our vision of happiness, we're just not that species, right? That's not who we are. That's not what our instincts are. It just doesn't work that well for us. Anton Chekhov was born in Russia in 1860 and died 44 years later. In the course of his short life, he wrote more than 500 short stories and more than a dozen plays. His most famous four plays, The Seagull, The Three Sisters, Uncle Vanya, and The Cherry Orchard, are performed constantly around the world. His short stories are a masterclass in empathy, clarity, and complication. There are no easy answers to be found in Chekhov's writing. He shows us people and the world as they are, not as we would like them to be. There is an absorbing dailiness to his characters' lives. They eat, they smoke cigarettes, they argue, fret, have affairs. They wonder what will truly fulfill them. They desperately want to live worthwhile lives, but they can't stop longing for some person, some place, or some version of themselves just beyond their reach. I took a course on Chekhov a little more than a year ago at the University of Toronto. My professor was Julia Zarankin, a Russian literature specialist who was born in Ukraine and emigrated to Canada when she was three years old. And Professor Zarankin was my guest on the Sunday edition last April as part of a special program called We Must Go On Living, Anton Chekhov, for the 21st century. That program was produced by Pauline Holsworth. Why is he special to you? I think what I love most about Chekhov, and probably one of the reasons that I think about Chekhov at least once a day, is his ambiguity. 
Things are never clear-cut in Chekhov. He presents us a world where you sympathize or empathize with every single character, um, no matter no matter their point of view, no matter what they've done in their life. Um, Virginia Woolf said that Chekhov really che- um, tests our fitness as readers. So Chekhov does something different. He forces he forces you outside of your comfort mm-hmm. zone and forces you to confront your own preconceptions and your own sort of biases and forces you to rethink them through the reading of his stories. What always strikes me about Chekhov when I reread him now is just how modern he is, and especially a lot of the modern concerns, like in Uncle Vanya when he's talking about environmentalism. Those are some of the, you know, hot topics that that we're talking about today. I think part of the way he manages that is by looking at people not so much in terms of their belief, but in terms of their of their complexities. And as people, we haven't really changed in the past 150, 150 years ago. Our anxieties are still the yeah. same. We're still trying to live a good life. We're, we still wonder what that means. We're still chasing happiness, even though it's an elusive concept. So whether our politics or our, our ideas have changed, our fundamental humanity hasn't. His, the way he deals with this question of, of happiness is, is fascinating because he, in a sense, he doesn't really deal with it. He lets the characters talk about it and walk around in it and, and handle it. What, what is his view of happiness? Is it, is it a process or is it an end? I think happiness for Chekhov is an extremely ambiguous concept. It's this thing that we're constantly after. We're searching for it. We're desperate yeah. for it. We we live for happiness. And yet we couldn't define it if we were hard pressed to define it. And so I think Chekhovian characters, they're always running running away from something or running towards something, running toward this amorphous notion of what it means to be happy. Um, they know they want it, but they don't yeah. know what it is. Just like the three sisters who are desperate to get to Moscow. They keep saying, to Moscow, keep saying to, to Moscow, to Moscow, to Moscow. They, they don't but they don't get there. They never get there, first of all. And they have no idea what it means, and they have no idea what it would mean yeah. to live there. Did he have an ideology himself? Did he uh, – he wasn't – you made it clear in the class that he was not a moralizer. No. Um, I think he's he's the opposite of a moralizer. His his goal is really to present life in all of its messy complexity. And I think in, in one of his letters to his friend Suvorin, he actually said that the only people who think – they know the only people who think they understand uh, are are charlatans and fools. He was a physician. He was a doctor. And I was reading something, I think it was an essay by Tobias Wolff, the American writer, who said that he he looked at life as a doctor, as a diagnostician, without making moral judgments. I think that's a really lovely, lovely way to put it. Um, he He's diagnosing the problem, but not providing a solution yeah, yeah, ever yeah. for the reader. And so some people are frustrated um, with that experience of reading a Chekhov story because we never know where he stands at the end. And he breaks the story off just before we would want him to. So there's always that level of ambiguity at the end. Can you define or describe a... A Chekhovian character, do they have something in common? 
A Chekhovian character is living two lives at once. There's this passage in Lady with a Lapdog when, when Chekhov says through his character that we, we have an outer life and an inner life. This sort of outer life which lives according to the laws of society and this inner secret life which is our true life. And the Chekhovian character is constantly wrestling between these two lives. Um, and a Chekhovian character also lives very much in the mundane ordinary yeah. world. Yeah. Is he trying? Is he trying to dislocate us in some way, and or is he trying um, purposefully to make us feel a bit uncomfortable? I think both, and that's also what makes Chekhov so modern. He is trying to dislocate us, and he's trying to dislocate us from our own beliefs and t- trying to make us question how we live and what we think truth is. And absolutely, it makes us uncomfortable. Part of what makes it uncomfortable is the experience of reading a Chekhov story often makes you sympathize or empathize with somebody who you never thought you'd be empathetic toward. I want to throw a quote at you from uh, Robert Frost, whom I, I love uh, his poetry. He said that he he can sum up everything he's learned about life. In three words, it goes on. That's a kind of Chekhov statement, isn't it, in a way? It absolutely is. If there's one thing that Chekhov's characters manage, it's resilience. They persevere. They persevere in spite of everything that happens, that life goes on. And in, you know, in the play, Uncle Vanya, uh, the, Toward the end of the play, their lives have just crumbled yeah. around them. You know, they're, they're left destitute. And the, the servant Marina, she still lights the samovar and she still yeah. feeds the chickens yeah. and that life goes on. And I think Chekhov knew that as a physician and as, um, he, he was a, he died very young. He died at the age of 44. He suffered from tuberculosis. You know, he was not blind to, to the difficulties yeah. of life. And yet we continue. The fact of his mortality, did that influence his writing, do you think? Absolutely. Uh, in in many of his stories, characters grapple with their mortality, and they all know where they're headed. Sure, yeah, yeah. So there's a constant awareness of that and a constant desire to live life fully, and along with that, an inability to live life fully. So that's one of the big Chekhovian paradoxes. We want to live so badly, and we don't know how. Can we go to Chekhov and and get some kind of solace from reading him? I get a tremendous amount of solace from Chekhov because I think he really recognizes the central paradox of life, which is that we live as best we can, knowing that all of this is absurd, <laughs> knowing that life is going to end, knowing that all our decisions are yeah. problematic. And yet, in spite of that, we persevere. What Chekhov was really after is um, this understanding that life is absolutely, it's absolutely beautiful and absolutely horrible.
Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, which provides affordable, private online counseling. When you sign up at betterhelp.com best, you get unlimited access to a licensed, trained, fully accredited therapist on your phone and computer through text, voice, or video chat. And of course, they're LGBT-friendly. It's great for individuals or couples counseling for anything you're going through in life right now, and of course, in this political climate, who couldn't use a little extra help? When you get started, you fill out a questionnaire so they can match you with a counselor who's perfect for you, and you can start counseling today. But if you decide you don't vibe with the therapist you're matched with, you can switch whenever you want. It's less expensive than in-person counseling, but you're still getting the same great help from licensed professionals. A lot of people are not comfortable talking to a therapist in person, or they simply don't have the time, but with better help, you connect from anywhere you are, at home, work, or on the go, and if you have trouble affording it, BetterHelp even has financial aid available. You can sign up right now and save on quality professional therapy by going to betterhelp.com best. You can take a step towards supporting your own mental health and support this show at the same time by using our link to let them know we sent you. That's betterhelp.com best, and that link is in our show notes. What was more difficult for you, admitting that you were depressed or challenging the reasons you believed you were depressed? And what does that say to you about depression? They were both hard, but the second one was the hardest. It's a sign of how difficult it was. I wanted to write this book seven years ago. I decided it'd be easier to go off. It'd be easier, instead of investigating this question, I would find it easier to write a book that required me to go and spend time with hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels, right? I was really frightened of looking into this. Um, and there were many reasons why I felt emboldened to do it, partly because the crisis is so great for so many people. And there were some aspects of it. Uh, there were two that I found particularly challenging, two of the causes of depression and anxiety that I learned about that I found particularly challenging. One was, we all know that, because I felt it playing out in my own life so strongly, we all know that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick. You don't have to walk very long anywhere in the Western world to see that. I learned that there's a similar process that's happened with our values, that kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have been saying, if you think life is about money and status and stuff, you're going to feel really bad. But weirdly, no one had actually scientifically investigated that until an amazing man I got to know at Knox College in Illinois called Professor Tim Kasser started to actually scientifically investigate it. So Professor Kasser knew there are basically two kinds of ways human beings can motivate themselves, right? So if you imagine, if you play the piano, which I don't, but if you do, if you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that would be an intrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it to get something out of it. You're doing it because that experience is what you want in life. And now imagine you play the piano, not because you want to do it, because I don't know, your parents want you to be a piano maestro and they're really pressuring you, or in a dive bar to pay the rent that you can't stand. That would be an extrinsic reason to do it. You're not doing it for the experience itself. You're doing it to get something else out of the experience, right? We're all a mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic motives, and we change throughout our lives. But what Professor Kasser found is the more you're driven by extrinsic values, the more you're driven by getting money or status or something else rather than the thing that you're actually doing, the more likely you are to become depressed and anxious by quite considerable margin. This has been found in lots of studies now. Um, and, and 
and I began to think of this as a kind of junk values that are akin to akin to um, junk food. Then actually, P- Professor Kessler has shown extrinsic values have significant significantly increased throughout our culture. There's a nice little experiment that I think shows what's been going on here. It was done in, before Professor Kessler was done in 1978. Um, you get a bunch of five-year-olds and you put them all in a sandbox and you split them into two groups. The first group is shown two advertisements for a specific toy. Second group is shown no advertisements. And then they get all the kids together and say, hey, kids, you've all got a choice now. You can either play with a nice boy who doesn't have the toy that was in the ad, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy. The kids who haven't seen the advert choose the nice boy. And the kids who have seen the advert choose the nasty boy with the toy. So just two advertisements primed people to choose an inferior connection, in fact, a nasty person and a lump of, with a lump of plastic over the possibility of connection and kindness, right? I think you can see how that plays out. I mean, I don't have to mention the name of your president. I try to avoid saying it. Uh, that, you know, you can see how that plays out in people's lives. You can see how if you're obsessed with money and status and your wife being hot rather than being like a decent person or your husband being hot rather than being a decent person or your husband being rich rather than being a decent person, how that makes people more insecure hour by hour, day by day, how that mass, and there's actually many reasons why junk values make people feel worse, but, but, but our minds have really been hijacked by that. And I could see that playing out in myself, right? I, I could feel that. That was very challenging. We are speaking with Johan Hari. He is a New York Times bestselling author. He His new book is Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Johan's been on our show several times. The last time was discussed his book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. You write that I have come to believe something that would have shocked me at the start of your investigation. We have been systematically misinformed about what depression and anxiety are. Is it simply based on bad assumptions, bad science, or do you think that it is some other institutional, even profit-driven reason we are misinformed about depression and anxiety? Is it some sort of cabal-driven conspiracy? It's not cabal-driven conspiracy at all. I think there's several factors going on. There's the easiest one to point out, which I don't think is the biggest, but I think is real, and in fact has been established in court as real, which is obviously Big Pharma, right? Um, there's a $10 billion industry in... Um, in selling these drugs, which do have some value, but don't solve the problem for most people. Um, and, you know, obviously these companies, and in fact, this was established in, it's been established in court where these companies had to make big payouts many times, especially in New York State when Elliot Spitzer was the attorney general. Um, you know, they massively uh, oversold the drugs. They massively overpromised. You know, there's a process that was quite, quite shocking for me to be shown a, a leaked memo from the company that manufactured the antidepressant I took as a teenager, in which they admitted the antidepressant did not work for teenagers, and yet they were going to carry on marketing it because, as they put it, it would be unacceptable for the commercial profile of paroxetine to release these results. So, you know, there definitely was an overselling going on there. I actually don't think that's the main thing going on. Um, I think there's a deeper, deeper thing going on, and it's related to something that you cover a lot, Chuck. It's about neoliberalism. So when I was a child, Margaret Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals and their families. And that ideology was obviously promoted by Ronald Reagan as well. That actually social things are not real. There's only the individual and, the, you know, and their families and maximizing their rational economic interests. Really took, really won, right? And 
partly what I learned from all these scientists is that depression and anxiety are largely caused by social and psychological problems. There's real biological factors that can make it worse. But they're caused by these factors in the way we're living to a large degree. And if you live in a culture that says there's no such thing as society, talking about social causes is going to sound really strange. It's like speaking in Aramaic, right? It's interestingly why some people have just completely misunderstood what I'm saying. So if I say chemical imbalance theory isn't true, which for which the science is overwhelming, um, what they think I'm saying is, well, that means it's your fault that you are weak. We, we, we've only had this, this either, it's the individual's responsibility and they're weak and they need to pull themselves together, or it's a biological fault. And if you come along and say, well, actually, the World Health Organization and all these people say that actually reality is a third option that it's caused by the way we're living, that's such a strange thing to say in a, in a neoliberal culture that people just literally, some people just literally can't understand what you're saying, what people like the World Health Organization are saying. So, you know, it really struck me, one of the places that most struck me the, the, the importance of this was uh, one of the other kind of anti... So I talk about these seven different kinds of antidepressant that we should think about and utilize alongside um, alongside chemical antidepressants in, in lost connections. And one of them, there was this doctor in East London uh, called Sam Everington, who's an incredible man. And it's a very poor part of East London, is where I lived for a long time. And Sam was really uncomfortable. He had loads of people coming to him who were depressed and anxious, and when he listened to them, he could see that they were depressed and anxious for perfectly understandable reasons. Again, their pain made sense. And yet he'd been told in his training, even though he knew the science was, didn't say this, to just tell them you've got a chemical imbalance in your brain and offer them nothing like drugs. Like me, Sam's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He still prescribes them sometimes, as I would if I was a doctor. But he just thought, this is not, this is not dealing with the reasons why they're depressed. So he began an, a really interesting experiment. I'll give you an example of how it worked through one of his patients who I got to know, a woman called Lisa Cunningham, came to Sam. Lisa had been shut away with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to her, you know, I, I carry on giving you the drugs, don't worry. But I'm also going to prescribe something different. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known uh, was an alleyway. It was like scrub, scrubland, basically, where dogs would go and mess in. And he said, what I'd like us to do, we're going to support you, is meet a couple of times a week and we're going to, with other depressed and anxious people. And I'd like you, as a group, to just turn this area into something beautiful. At the first meeting, Lisa was physically sick with anxiety. As the weeks went on, she starts speaking to the other members of the group. They start to get to know each other. They started to teach themselves gardening. They were inner city people. They didn't know anything about the natural world. Actually, there's lots of evidence that disconnection from the natural world is a cause of depression and anxiety. And, and they just start putting their fingers in the soil. They, they have something to talk about that's not how terrible they feel. And as human beings do when we come together in groups, they started to listen to each other's problems and solve them. There was one guy in the group who'd been sleeping on the bus. Um, Lisa was outraged. She starts pressuring the local authorities to get him an apartment, which then happened. It was the first thing she had done for someone else in years, and it made her feel better than anything she'd done for herself. And as Lisa and other people put it to me, as the flowers began to bloom, they began to bloom. There was a study in Norway that, of a similar program that found it was twice as effective as chemical antidepressants, right, in moving people on the Hamilton scale we were talking about. And I think the reason is obvious because it's actually dealing with why they felt so terrible. One of the, two of the key reasons, their disconnection from other people and their disconnection from the natural world, that were actually driving this depression and this, 
this despair in the first place. And that's, and coming back to, to your question, it's not in any way a conspiracy. A, um, a capitalist economy will only, um, you know, a kind of hyper-capitalist neoliberal economy will only look for solutions that can be monetized. There's a lot of money to be made in, in just drugging everyone in that group. And there's really no money to be made in them taking part in a gardening program. They reconnect with the natural world or very little money. And yet that program is twice as effective. So it's more that you get this distortion in the kind of economy we have where the, the solutions that can be monetized will be the only solutions that are, you know, uh, promoted and explored most of the time. You knew Viktor Frankl. What kind of a man was he? Complicated. Uh, I think he's the only true genius that I've ever known in my life. Really? He was a, an extremely witty, funny guy. A sense of humor, I think, uh, helped carry him through uh, his own Holocaust experiences. And then I remember well that the the prisoners in the concentration camps, and he was in four of them, promised one another to tell each other jokes just to get some momentary uh, relief from their circumstances. So extremely bright guy, strong-willed, uh, highly opinionated, intolerant of incompetence in his medical colleagues and so on, uh, an extremely uh, interesting guy to be with, always the center of attention, it seemed like. Let's move, let's move to the book for a moment. Why do you think it has such resonance for millions of readers 70 years later? Yeah, it is quite a phenomenal story, that little book. I think one of the, one of the things that caught people's attention were the extremes of the circumstances in which he ended up with his family. I think the extremes of suffering is one thing, and then his absolutely stubborn conviction that human beings, at least in some measure, can rise above circumstances, even the worst circumstances, not perfectly, but more than we think, we can rise above unavoidable uh, suffering and circumstances and take some sort of stand against what threatens us, and for what it means to be a human being. What does Viktor Frankl mean by meaning? Maybe one of the ways to explain what he was talking about is whatever gives a human being reason to live and to find purpose means that, that life must be meaningful or be discovered as meaningful in order to tolerate the things that happen to people and in order for one to devote oneself to the good of others. To find life meaningful means that there is some cause or some person or some expression outside of oneself, beyond oneself, mm -hmm. and clearly greater than oneself, so that in discovering meaning in life for an individual— 
does eventually mean a kind of self-forgetfulness or a decentering of yeah. of oneself to focus on something outside which is more important and greater and worth giving oneself to. He differentiates, does he not, in the book between what constitutes a happy life and a meaningful life. What is the difference? <laughs> he was he was quite critical of the American, even the American Constitution, and this idea of the pursuit of happiness, that everyone has a right to that. The problem with that is, he said, uh, that the more one pursues happiness as an end, as a goal in itself, the less likely one is ever to find that. He said it isn't happiness that we need. It's something to be happy about. And to make happiness the goal, in fact, produces just the opposite. And But when one finds a reason to be happy, some, some cause to live for, happiness happens naturally and as a byproduct of a meaningful life. So the pursuit of happiness is self-defeating. I think uh, one of the core elements of the book is his view of suffering and, and how one can marshal one's suffering so it doesn't turn into despair. I want uh, just to listen to a bit of tape we have here. This is, sure. this is Viktor Frankl himself. Despair is suffering without meaning. As long as an individual cannot find, cannot see any meaning in his or her suffering, he or she will, uh, her will certainly be prone to despair, but at the moment they can see a meaning in their suffering. They can mold it into an achievement. They can turn their tragedies into a personal triumph, but they must know for what. What should I do with it? Don, I'm having trouble getting my head around the idea that there is meaning in suffering. There isn't. And Franco was very clear to talk about unavoidable suffering. When people suffer and they can do something about it, they can deal with it, that you can't find meaning in suffering that you can take care of and, and deal with. Uh, it's the unavoidable suffering to which he referred. And Suffering in itself uh, is not meaningful. One has to find meaning in living in the face of suffering. And some of Frankel's critics are, are very unfair when they say that the idea he was promoting is that all you need is the proper attitude, is, is the search for meaning in the middle of suffering, and that takes care of it. And some accuse him for kind of glossing over the terrors of the Holocaust by saying if you had the right attitude, you could survive anything. Well, in my book, I have identified no fewer than 12 or 15 uh, reasons for Frankl's survival in the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And none of them have to do with, with choosing one's attitude or taking a stand. They have to do with luck. And officials in the concentration camps who liked to talk with him, he ruddied up his cheeks with a piece of glass so that he'd look healthier when there were selections going on. Um, and what he was saying is all things being equal, which they never are, all things being equal, it might make the difference between life and death for one to choose 
an attitude or to choose what to make of his or her suffering. And what catches, I think, the attention of so many millions of people is that in the midst of those four concentration camps, three of them uh, desperately dangerous uh, and, and horrible circumstances, he would say that when all the other freedoms are taken away, the freedom to move, to go, to mm-hmm. even to connect with other people, when everything is gone, one still has the last freedom, and that is to choose how I will look at my circumstances and what I will do with them. And instead of sinking into despair uh, in the midst of uh, deprivation, illness, life-threatening circumstances, was that I could choose to give my last piece of bread to someone who is in even worse shape than I am and, and find meaning in doing things like that. Franco would say... In doing that sort of thing, we become fully human. We defy what is in us that's base and self-centered and become fully human, that we have the capabilities of doing those things. Reality TV shows have uh, proven to be real money makers for the networks. You can do away with all those troublesome writers and high-paid actors. They capitalize, I think, on America's inherent voyeuristic tendencies. You know, we don't have party lines anymore, so we can't listen in to our neighbors' conversations directly, but we can we can spy on them through television programs. And it appeals to that swath of society that always slows down to watch uh, an automobile accident. From survivor-type contests to bachelor and bachelorette dating shows to this current space that I find actually more disturbing, focusing on uh, hoarders and and uh, junk that people collect, the auctioning off storage units, because a lot of that stuff really is, I don't think of it as entertainment. I, I think it's sort of taking the moral pulse of of the public. There is a form of philosophical argument that the Latin description is reductio ad absurdum, or reduce it to absurdity. Any argument that you can push out to its absolute extreme reveals the absurdity of the argument. What we see in a lot of reality TV is a reflection of our society in a mirror, whether it's housewives from a particular community or uh, storage wars. But that image that we see when we look, it looks kind of like a funhouse mirror because it it exaggerates our worst qualities. Over the past two generations, most manufactured goods have become more affordable. That's the whole issue of exporting of manufacturing to low-wage or no-wage situations so that that we now can acquire things in much larger volume for a much smaller percentage of our income. 
any of you that have uh, moved lately, uh, if you move into a, a house that's 50 or 60 years old, they oftentimes have closets that are about this wide. And, and I was a kid in those days and lived in one of those houses, and we lived quite adequately with that. But now if you even rent an apartment, even if it's a one-bedroom apartment, it will probably have a huge walk-in closet. Because even though a walk-in closet was something you would find in a mansion, 50 years ago, now it's common because we've all got more stuff and stuff that we feel like we have to have. And a counseling client several years ago that she realized she had a shoe hoarding problem when she thought that she couldn't go to sleep because she didn't have a pair of gray and taupe high-heeled shoes in case she needed a gray and taupe high heel shoes. We we uh, fixate on the acquisition and the keeping of absolutely everything. But hoarding is not entertainment. It it is a symptom of an illness. It's an illness uh I think it has many possible mental health issues involved. Uh most professionals tend to talk about it as an obsessive compulsive disorder, but there's also oftentimes complications of schizophrenia and paranoia that is also a part of it. Some of it, however, is just ugly greed, just greed. As a pastor in those old days, uh, when I first entered the ministry, a big part of our job was going to visit members in their homes. And I can tell you, I have seen a lot of hoarding. Often the people who live in these homes are capable of emerging from the house, dressed appropriately, appearing clean, and smelling sweet. But the truth of their existence is that they live surrounded by empty uh, milk bottles and cottage cheese cartons and margarine cartons and uh, canned foods that are out of date and old newspapers and magazines and bags of clothes. And I've even seen used tires and things like that that they refuse to get rid of. I suppose uh, that people who may watch some of these shows are assuring themselves, at least I'm not that bad. I mean, there, there is some sense in which you can live in your own squalor if you can see that there's someone else that's got the fixation much worse. But I'd like to suggest um, that the presence of so many hoarders in our midst is a commentary on our consumer society. It's, it is a reductio ad absurdum argument that, that reveals the sickness of our culture. Hoarders are the extreme version of almost all of us who collect, store, save, and allow ourselves to become attached to way too many things. I use the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism as our wisdom text today because I believe there's just an awful lot that we can learn from at least a cursory understanding of Buddhist practice. The first of the Four Noble Truths is translated in many different ways, but it's uh, essentially saying that suffering is real, suffering exists, living is suffering, or uh, as the bumper sticker used to say, something to the effect of stuff happens, that that mere existence involves suffering. The second very flatly states that the source of all suffering is our desires, our, our wanting 
certain things, our attachment to belongings, to people, to power, maybe even to life, that, that we, we want something that we don't have and we want all of it. The third noble truth tells us that there is a way out of suffering, and that way is through detachment, following the Eightfold Path is uh, the final one. Um, there is a classic uh, Buddhist teaching. In, anything that can be put in a nutshell probably belongs there, but forgive me for a, a lot of uh, shorthand references, but 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 there's a story that, that uh, a monk said to uh, his master, I want happiness. And the master replied, remove the I, because that is just ego, remove the want, because that is desire, and all that is left is happiness. It's, it's a shorthand way of saying it's your ego and your desires and attachments that are keeping you from, from finding actual happiness in your life. Clearly, detachment, however, is the exact opposite of almost everything our, our economy is built on. Our consumer society is built on you buying things so that someone can get a job making things and selling things. Commercials, advertisements are scientifically designed to make us want to buy, to own, and ultimately store more and more stuff. As you drive through the countryside now, you see all of these storage unit businesses. And I understand there may be legitimate reasons in many cases to have a storage unit, but how many of those storage units do you assume are full of something that someone isn't using, will never use, but was not emotionally capable of getting rid of it? Advertisements show us young, beautiful, sexy, and happy people suggesting that the source of their youth, their beauty, their sex appeal, their joy is in the car that they're driving or the kind of beer that they're drinking or the clothes that they're wearing or even the vacation that they're taking. That what stands between you and happiness is not diminishing your ego and diminishing your wants, but going and buying something else, wearing something else, eating or drinking something else, or going somewhere. In our culture, it is true to say we have poverty, not because we cannot feed the hungry, but because the wealthy cannot be satisfied. That the the transfer of wealth from the middle class to the top 1% or the point one of 1% is at the top. They have the power to write the laws, the tax laws, the, the, uh, the way that uh, financial instruments work. And so they write the laws so that they keep getting more and more and more, but are never satisfied. I would challenge you, when was the last time, you don't have to say it out loud, I don't want to embarrass you, but think about it. When was the last time you just went to the art museum and walked through and looked at the art? To go and and appreciate something that is beautiful that you could not buy, that's not yours. And, and the majority of the traffic at our local art museum is during Watercolor USA when the artwork is for sale. We get interested when we can have it, 
but we have forgotten how to appreciate it for simply what it is. We go on Amazon.com. We don't even go to the mall anymore. We go on Amazon.com and we buy what we like. But there's hardly a category left in our brains for loving something that is beautiful that will never hang on the wall of our own living room. Our society consumes. We're not very good at enjoying. We're good at buying. We're not good at appreciating. I'm guilty of having my smartphone in my hands way too much. But isn't it obvious that there there is no cell phone app that that is anywhere near as fascinating as the flowers in the Japanese stroll garden right here in Springfield this time of year? And you think about the amount of time. we uh, Sociologists are saying now that people on average look at their cell phones five hours a day. Five hours a day. And when was the last time you went to the Japanese uh, stroll garden? And and I hope you're hearing this as a challenge. Tell yourself this week you're going to go by the art museum and you're going to go by the Japanese stroll garden and begin to reclaim a very basic and fundamental aspect of enjoying being alive without owning something new. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ezra Klein talking with Johan Hari about his criticisms of modern society. Ideas explored the struggles of life through the works of playwright Anton Chekhov. This is Hell also spoke with Johan Hari about the epidemic of disconnection. Ideas continued exploring the human condition about the search for meaning with a discussion of author and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl. And finally, we just heard a portion of a progressive faith sermon from Dr. Roger Ray in which he gives perspective and advice on escaping suffering. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And although we don't have a midterms minute segment in today's show, I'd like to urge you to explore our show notes where we have organized quick links to important information and resources for all of the early August primaries that we have featured thus far. This information also includes links to help you phone bank for progressive candidates across the country, so definitely check out the notes today. And we don't have any voicemails for you today, but I do have one short clip to share. Now, I'm not sure if this is obvious, uh, but it was certainly clear to me. I, I see today's episode as sort of a sister episode to the the episode of Focus on Fear last week. Today, more depression and feeling down last one was uh, fear and its political ramifications. So this is more sort of in, in the personal realm. And, uh, and I heard a clip this last week that I want to share with you that it, it could very well have been in that, uh, in, in that last show, but it's not just any clip from any show. I mean, that happens all the time. Um, this is actually from the show that I just introduced to you. If you remember from the last episode, I introduced the podcast Offshore, which focuses on doing really interesting in-depth narrative storytelling uh, journalism, all focused on stories that are related to Hawaii. And so I, I was you know, not just introducing uh, season two of Offshore to you. I, I went ahead and decided to listen to all of season one again. You know, I'd heard it before, but I listened to it again 
And I came across, a, you know, a little segment of, of one of the episodes that struck me in a way that I, I don't remember if it struck me before, but I, I certainly didn't remember it last time. And I think I'm going to remember it this time. So to set up this clip, uh, season one of Offshore uh, focuses on a white mainland policeman shooting and killing a native Hawaiian. And it's obviously a story that echoes a lot of what's been talked about over the last several years in police shootings of people of color all throughout the country. And uh, then they went one level deeper and also talked about echoes of a historical murder that took place in Hawaii, which was really essentially a lynching, uh, you know, sort of mob revenge uh, concept going on uh, back in the 30s. So it was a really interesting season, re-listened to all of that, and near the end of the season, I heard this. After a few months of spending all my time reporting on violence and racism and all this dark history, it was hard not to start feeling depressed. Will we ever be able to get along? Is history doomed to repeat itself? Will America ever be able to confront the ugly ghosts of its past? So I asked Makaava Ava, is there some hope that Hawaii can offer? He didn't hesitate. Not for a second. Yeah, he said. Absolutely. I think the Hawaiian value of aloha. The true Hawaiian value of aloha, like, um, you know, me, I always look at the world as like a really fear-driven world. Fear is the greatest emotion in the human spirit today. That's an emotion that is gripping America and the whole world today. Aloha is the opposite of fear. Anything what fear creates, aloha is the rival to it. So aloha can, you know, mean love and all that too. But aloha can also mean courage. It's, you know, I'm not afraid of you. I can be, you know, humble in myself and know that whatever you're trying to show to me is not taking away from me. I got to give you this space because you need that. You know, you need that. That strength is aloha. That strength to know who you are and to always fight fear is aloha. So I think the connection to the episode about fear is pretty clear. I don't have to draw that out for you. Um, but to back way up, I got to say, one of my pet peeves for years now has been when people use aloha in their email signature. And the way I have always interpreted this is almost that it doesn't quite matter how they mean it. I mean, I have no idea what people necessarily mean when they write aloha, but um, what what it always makes me think is, well, you know, I've been to Hawaii, I know how amazing and beautiful it is, and I'm not there right now, and I am irritated to be reminded apropos of nothing that other people are there and probably in, enjoying it quite a lot, and, and uh, it just makes me envious to, to hear people use aloha, which is sort of an indicator that I'm currently in Hawaii or I live in Hawaii, something like that. And I think that that irritation has been based entirely on the more, uh, the incredibly stripped down and commercialized version of aloha. You know, I mean, when I first learned the word, you know, 25 years ago or more, it, it meant hello and goodbye. Like that, that was it. That's all I was told that it meant. And it was years and years later before any kind of additional complicated nuances of the word were added. But even then it wasn't 
what we just heard in that clip, uh, not by a long shot. So now with this sort of deeper, more complex understanding, of course I agree that everything that is love and the opposite of fear is what needs to be propagated as far and wide as possible. So I'm happy to retroactively reverse all of my feelings of irritation I have ever had at people who use the word aloha in their email signatures. For all I know, of course, maybe they're just thinking that it means hello or goodbye or best wishes or something like that. And But I'm going to choose to interpret it with the deeper meaning and appreciate anyone who is, is going to make the effort to put that sentiment out into the world at any possible opportunity. So I just wanted to share that uh, one short little thing with you. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. But before I go, just a quick note that today's episode is sponsored by Dollar Shave Club. They deliver everything you need to look, feel, and smell your best, including shampoo, conditioner, body wash, toothpaste, hair gel, even a wipe that'll leave your tush feeling tingly clean. It really is so much that it's hard to know where to start. So they've made it easy for you with this great new way to try a bunch Bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products for just five bucks. You can get their daily essential starter set. It comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, their amazing butt wipes, their world famous shave butter, and their best razor, the Six Blade Executive. And you can keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month and add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need. Check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Now, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com